Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. If you're like many developers, most of the time you're building systems that are intended to be used directly by users. However, eventually you will be tasked with building processes to process data out of band. And when you do, you'll quickly learn that such processing requires very different thought process. Really? What? Just, yeah, you're just trying to tongue twist me. That requires this, a very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this episode, we'll talk about some things you need to consider when you have to build a batch process. But before we get started, Will, what have you been processing this week? <laughs> <laughs> Nicely played. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I've been really digging down deep into the Angular stuff. I'm starting to really like it again. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that's it's that same kind of uh, you know back and forth that always seems to happen. You know, things have been reasonably calm. I'll still say that things are weird here in Nashville between the coronavirus and the tornado, but it's not you know maybe as weird as it was. I don't know. It's just it's been relatively calm. My wife has a new car now, so we went to CarMax and did that. That chewed up an alarming amount of time on Saturday. <laughs> You would think that CarMax not doing the haggling, the no-haggle pricing stuff would not take up time, but it still takes a lot of time. Yeah, well, they also have multiple systems. And so, like, there's the credit thing. And, uh, you know, they have to do your credit check and then they have to you know, do all this other stuff because we do the financing. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> what was funny <laughs> is the guy was like, yeah, I don't know what it does when it does the credit check. My daughter goes, it probably connects to LexisNexis. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy just looked at her and I was like, yeah, she's heard me cuss about it. <laughs> so there's that. So how about you? Oh, wow. So, uh, hey man, I don't think I told you this earlier this evening, but have a super March 10th. Super Mario. Yes. <laughs> I've been seeing that all over Facebook today. So my mom got a new dining room table. Which meant you got an old one. Yes, exactly. Uh, So she and my uncle and aunt brought over her old dining room table yesterday and uh, set it up. Of course, they wanted to put the... It's got an extension, so they wanted to put the leaf in it and like, like, let's see how it looks with it fully extended. And so we did that and I'm like, I don't like it. It's just, you know, it just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't quite fit in the space. I'm like, it looked really good without it. Like, oh, well, you can look at it for a few days and take it out yourself. We really need to get going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Take it out right now. Yeah. Is that the one that she had at her house like five years ago? That's the one that she's had like 35 years. Okay. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Just leave the extra leaves out of it and you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was funny. Like I got up this morning and uh, walked, you know, through the living dining room area to the kitchen to make coffee. And I just kind of looked at it and it was like, wow. Because I grew up with this table like my whole life. And I'm like, it just the place feels like home having that. Nice. So that was that was funny. So another thing that I was given, uh, used, is a friend of mine gave me uh, They gave a you server. a friend? That's awesome. Yes, yeah, so I got a used friend. Um, just don't eat the used sushi. Mm. So, uh, no, a friend of mine, they're moving their office. He gave me an old server. It's a Dell PowerEdge 2800. Okay. Like the, the quad monitors you gave me, it doesn't have any cables with it. <laughs> Yeah, but I'll hook you up with the cables because they're in my way. Yeah, yeah. I figured you wouldn't have any problem with that. I figured it just like one of two things happened. Either they were in the friend's vehicle who brought it over to me or you forgot to bring them. One of the two. No, with this, and it, it's fine. I can get cables for it. But uh, 
it doesn't have like they removed all the hard drives and moved them over to the their new server. And so I'm like, all right, I gotta get some hard drives for it, but what am I gonna do with it? Any suggestions? So like this is this is a question for Will, but this is also a question for our audience. Like, any suggestions? Looking at the chassis, it's pretty big. I mean, like yes. it's a five U rack mount. So if I were you, I would probably just cram the thing full of hard drives and use it as a NAS, like a grossly <laughs> overpowered NAS and maybe a lightweight web server. Yeah. You're not going to run, you know, like more modern stuff on it, but there's a lot of stuff you could probably get away with on there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm open for suggestions right now. It's just sort of sitting in my desk here. It's a, uh, it's not rack mount. It's the, the tower. Yeah. You can get a, you can get a additions to the chassis that make it rack mount. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't have a rack, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just sitting here now. Um, but uh, guys, if you got any suggestions, I'm open to hearing them. So Will's made his suggestion. We'll find out what you guys have to say. Took my guitar to worship practice this past week. Uh, unfortunately, our sound lead had to work late. So I was the only tech there and they were having some difficulties. So I didn't really get to play most of the songs. Uh, the one I did get to play uh, along with the band, I was able to keep up. At one point, I did make a mistake and uh, like lost my place, but was able to get back into the song. That was really cool, is that I was able to like make a mistake, figure out where they were in the song, and come back into it. So that was neat. Getting ready for our first developer launchpad meetup with the new format, we're going to be discussing talking tech to non-techies. Sound familiar? Yeah, sounds like our first episode. Yep, that's why I picked the topic. Also, it's a topic that can be discussed well over coffee. And that's sort of our, our new thing. It's like looking for added benefit. Um, like what we have been doing with the coding challenges has been really useful for, for people and we're not completely abandoning them. We're just looking for more ways to add value. So it yeah. seems like coding challenges seem to be really popular right around the time people get out of school when they're kind of like getting into development, looking for a job. But they tend to die off at other times. So we're like, all right, how can we provide for the community and help people even when they're not in, like they don't need the coding challenges. So we're looking at, all right, we can help not just people when they're looking to move up or move into the career, but ways that they can like benefit themselves in their current jobs. Yeah. I mean, like the thing is with coding, with the coding challenges, what you end up doing every month is you have to get a new cohort of people because the old cohort has dropped off. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not a growth curve. That's just no. a maintenance curve. And so we wanted to do something that would that would kind of be a little bit more long-lasting. So I think it's going to be pretty good. We're going to see how it works out Saturday. We'll let y'all know. So that leads us into Book Club. We got something uh, fun going on this month for Book Club. So uh, we're going to be talking about the book that I just finished writing. It's called Remote Work, The Complete Guide, and I'm the author, Will Gant. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what is in chapter one. In this chapter, I discuss the benefits of working remotely. A lot of people you know, just think about the time, money, and frustration that they would save by working remotely, but there are a lot of costs that people don't really consider that they're paying to go into an office. Uh, besides the value of their time, uh, working remotely can reduce your risk of catching a cold. That's kind of trending right now. Being in a car wreck or missing important life events because you're stuck in traffic. Uh, it can it enable people with medical issues or people who have family members with medical issues to actually have a full-time job when they otherwise couldn't. It makes it easier to make good use of downtime during the day, can allow you to get more and better sleep, and can even let you live in places that you would never expect as a software developer. Finally, it can even give you time for work-related training or to build your own business to get away from the nine-to-five grind forever. Uh, remote work is a life-changing opportunity. Um, it's more than just a simple perk. And so this first chapter kind of goes into 
what you gain by becoming a remote worker versus being on-site at a job. And you can read the first chapter at simpleprogrammer.com slash W-H-Y dash remote dash work. That way people didn't get confused and think it was the letter Y. That's why I did that. Yeah, I follow you. I follow you. Who's talking to us this week? So we have an email from Nicholas. Hey guys, longtime listener, first time writer. Hadn't met you guys before a Saturday afternoon in March following a Python slash data science boot camp I was attending at NSS. You know, speaking of developer launchpad, we used to host our events at Nashville Software School's old location. Didn't place the facial hair. Both of us have don't have long beards anymore, but I couldn't miss the voices. I love using SQL in my daily job, but I just turned 40 and need to be real about how much programming I can legit consume at this stage in life. What career path would avail itself to someone like me? Thanks for answering, Nicholas. Well, Nicholas, uh, thanks for the question. Just to get started, Beach started when he was in his mid-30s and has learned C-sharp and JavaScript slash TypeScript, I guess, with Angular. And he'll be turning 40 next year and is currently in graduate school for a master's in data science. Um, It's less about your age and more about what you have going on in your life that determines how much code you can do. We have friends who became developers in their 50s after working in other fields. And a lot of times, those are some of the most valuable people because it's not, you'll learn this as you do software development for a while. The biggest problem you have is never the code. It is the ecosystem of people either the people using your product or stuff like that, or just like understanding the business rules and being able to implement those. So I would tell you that I would probably shift my focus and go, how is my position in life right now a strength for me rather than a weakness, right? Because I'm, I'm 40. I turned 40 last year. And I definitely feel like the way that I approach development now is extremely different than the way I would be approaching it now if I was 25. That's neither good nor bad because I'm also not on the uh, anhedonic treadmill of JavaScript frameworks right now because of that. So just, I would just caution you to be careful and, and look at this from a perspective of what does my experience bring me versus what problems do I have? Because if you, if you look at it that way, then you can actually come up with a better solution. I like the uh, anhedonic treadmill. That's a good one. Of, That's really of good. JavaScript frameworks. frameworks. Yes. Because yes. it is. So Nicholas, send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. If you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We also post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and we're on Instagram and Tumblr. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. I'm so glad you did that part. I cannot say water bottle clearly about half the time. It's like brewery. I can't, there's just certain words I can't do. I know. That's why I did it. Yeah. Good call. Your advertisement could be here. If you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. Even though most developers prefer to build applications that respond to user input directly, in most applications, there are usually at least a few processes that have to happen out of band or even overnight. These processes require a different way of thinking about your code and about the processes that support that code. You might use offline batch processing for a variety of purposes within your application. Whether it is used for things like sending emails in bulk, importing large amounts of data from external systems, or pushing data to external systems, or for managing outages and latency in external services. It's a lot of externals. Yeah. Handling interactions with unstable, slow, or limited third-party systems is often best handled with a batch process. In addition, many industries have a tendency to prefer batch processing to processing as needed. 
Banking is one example of an older industry that tends to process things in this manner, and many other older and heavily regulated industries do the same. In this episode, we'll discuss some things you need to consider when handling batch processing. Whether you are writing a batch processor that handles a few records every five minutes, or a transaction processor that handles millions of records overnight. Because these processes work in a very different way than the typical web, mobile, or desktop application, we've grouped these suggestions by the part of the process in which they are relevant. This episode is based largely around the idea of overnight batch processing, but similar rules are going to apply for frequently scheduled jobs. Will has broken this down into four areas, startup, loading, running, and stopping. So first under startup, how often and where does this thing run? It's amusing how often people forget the physical execution environment. It's extremely important, especially if the process has to have completed successfully in a short time frame. You know, like it's running overnight and it needs to be done by morning when people come in. Mm-hmm. It's very common for uh, a crappier company to try and run batch processes off of developer workstations or even older computers stuffed in a closet somewhere. Yeah, and sometimes they get away with it for a long time. It's just, it works until it doesn't. It'll get slowly worse over time and then fail suddenly if you do that. All it really takes is for the cleaning staff to unplug a machine or for a power surge to hit the building, and you're going to have a mess on your hands if you do this. Like, you need to use a real non-developer server for this. You also need to think about the digital environment in which you're running. Uh, are all your servers available at the time of execution? Are they running intense batch processes themselves? Right. And you got to think about the databases you're using. Um, is maintenance being performed on them during this time window? Is, you know, are backups happening? Are the, you know, are you processing logs? Are you, you know, shaping data for a data warehouse? Those kind of things can happen. You got to think about time zone issues. Could your application scheduled runtime be missed during a shift to daylight savings time? Right. There's mm-hmm. time in there that doesn't happen. If you didn't Which think about that. Which is why daylight savings time should be done rid of. Yeah. Gotten rid of? Gotten rid of. Yeah. That's it should be term. done rid of. You got a threading done, issue now. Done um, with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Heck with it. Uh, uh, you also have to think about things like uh, forced system updates, you know, hard reboots, maintenance windows. Like, you know, could your staff be like, oh, I'm going to bounce this server right now because it's two o'clock in the morning and nobody's using it? You legit have to think about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, part of it too is just having your staff all on the same page. Yeah. And like uh, documentation or just like people knowing what's going on where and notifying you of, hey, we're going to be doing this on this system at this time. Right. So don't don't turn it off um, to plug in the vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Um, so the next thing you got to think about with the startup is what resources are actually available while your app is running and while it's spinning up Um, you got to think about things like memory disk network io those kind of deals just because there is a ton of that stuff available when you're writing the process doesn't mean that they will be available when it starts up for instance you could have backups running that are filling up a disk somewhere Mm -hmm. um and it's not really as available during this time frame, yeah. or there's you know memory pressure or those kind of things. Uh, this could impact how long your process takes to start up or whether it can even start at all. Sometimes systems are turned off or otherwise unavailable after hours. Now, a lot of times work systems will be turned off entirely after hours, especially if you're using a cloud environment. Yeah, I just had to talk with QA, actually. And they're like, okay, until 10 Eastern, our servers will be on. So if you can get your builds through, they'll go through tonight. Yeah, (laughs) And if you can't, so like, I have to finish this recording and then like rush over there. Actually, that's probably (laughs) not going to happen because 10 Eastern is in an hour. Third-party systems may be under similar constraints as well. Services you're depending on on the system itself may be off during this time period. Right. So somebody might, for instance, got a database server running, right? They turn that service off, you know, for two or three hours because they are, you know, physically backing up files or, you know, they're doing something else and they don't want you talking to it at this point. And so they just, you just never know 
really what's going to happen in a runtime environment like this when you're not there. Mm -hmm. So next under startup, how do you handle failure to start up? Right. Just because you schedule a process to run at a certain time doesn't mean that it actually happens then. Yeah. For instance, on Windows, right? Uh, You Hmm. kick off a scheduled task. I've had instances where the task runner has been available, the task was there, and you could run it manually, and it would not start automatically. Uh, I've had that problem too. uh, Those kind of things. I've also had things where the task runner service has crashed. And there, (laughs) you know, it could be a little bit of a problem. Like if it chokes and it dies, then what? permissions can change Uh, that can stop your program from running. You know, you're running under a certain user account principle and all of a sudden that one has been banned because the developer that set it up used their personal credentials and they got fired today. Yeah. Your app could also start loading and then fail before actually starting real processing. Um, This could result from anything from not having to all, you know, having all the dependencies that it needs um, to simply not being able to, uh, make contact with the system that it uses to determine what work needs to be done. There's lots of stuff that can cause it to fail. Antivirus is another good example of that. It may die. Now, this doesn't sound so bad until you realize that this means that you can't rely on your app to tell you that it didn't start because the app has to start to tell you. Mm-hmm. This means that you have to have some kind of monitoring process in place to let an admin know if the process fails to run. Right, which means that that system is also a potential point of failure now, especially if your code crashes due to it being down. Mm -hmm. So like it could, you know, it could spin up just fine and then that system interacts with it in a bad way and crashes your code. Yeah. You don't want to write your own tools for this because of that. Like if you ever see a catch-22 type situation like this in software development, make it somebody else's problem and pay (laughs) for that. Because like, yeah. it's a good task for them, and it's not a good one for you, more than likely, unless you're writing software specifically for this all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is one of those things where you want to push that off and get a third-party solution for it. Right. Yeah. Now, I've worked on multiple teams that have written their own task runners. I worked on one that was really cool. It was a Windows service. We could drop DLLs in there for the different tasks, mm-hmm. and you, know, you could schedule it in this little app. And it was really neat, and you could hot swap them, and oh, so that's unload neat. the DLL and 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 do all that. But the amount of crap you had to go through to get that thing working—I mean, it was like—I want to say it was like five developers took like four or five months to write this thing. And what value could have been delivered versus, hey, we have Windows scheduled tasks or we have cron jobs, you know, <laughs> like like let some bearded Unix geek deal with that, <laughs> preferably far away. So now we're going to talk about loading. The first one under loading, how do we retrieve the list of work items? Right. So there is some workload that you're processing when you're doing this. And this isn't like, you know, responding to a message queue type things. It's like, here's, you know, a hundred items. How do I process it? Where do I get them? One of the first steps you have to do is you have to retrieve your list of work items to process. And I know that this sounds simple, but there's a lot of, Uh, really complex things that can happen in here. This tends to mean accessing a database, a file system, possibly a durable message queue, or making a network call to some other service. So like you call out to your payment processor and you say, hey, give me all the transactions for today, you know, their IDs, and then I'm going to run through them and reconcile them or whatever. I dealt with some of that code today, actually. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. uh, This is an additional point of failure So you're going to want to have some retry logic in here so Mm -hmm. that if there is a transient network fault or a transient, uh, you know, file lock or something like that, it doesn't bring your whole process down, right? Like it should be able to try this multiple times because again, this is happening in the dead of night. Yeah. Now, if you do implement retry logic, you need to wait some time and try again. Uh, This is interesting because I've been working on this background process lately. Um, Really cool crawl. uh, cross-platform in .NET Core. Yeah. So it's it's like, it's really neat. But one of the things that uh, that got brought up was, hey, sometimes it, like it's transferring files. So it's like sometimes the file's not available for whatever reason. And it 
like I built in so that it doesn't crash the system. It just inactivates that particular like configuration and moves on to the next one. Well, right. the problem is they came back from like, hey, it's it's frustrating because, you know, in uploading three, four hundred files, one of them eventually is going to have this problem. And then we have to go back and restart it every time that happens. So I had to add like a retry logic into there. And it's like, like, it's just funny because I just did this the last couple of weeks. I've been working on it. So it's just, it's uh, interesting to me that you, you're talking about it here because I'm like, yep, uh, I understand. Yeah. Um, and the fact you that know. you can't do it immediately is. Right, right. That's that's the thing. Like I, I found like at first I was just going to put in a, a set time. Then I thought, well, you know, I can make that configurable because it may be different based on, you know, where it's located, like, you know, what server it's on or whatnot. And so like I made it so that they can put in the retry timeout and the number of retries. Yeah. And I like to do these where they're not uh, the same uh, size step. And so Mm -hmm. I'll do it like, okay, retry after two minutes. And then, you know, basically my, my function tends to be two raised to the number of retries minutes. Oh, that's so that it goes further and further out. Um, and, and there's a reason I do this, um, just as an aside, when you have a distributed system and you've got all these systems that are retrying and let's say that they're all retrying every two minutes, what happens if it's down for a while and they've got this queue backed up and then all of a sudden they all slam that server at the same time? when it comes back on and kill it again. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. I've seen uh, it. <laughs> yeah. It was oogly boogly. Let me tell you, that's not good at, you know, 1030 at night when mm. you're on vacation. No. The other thing is, and this, I kind of hinted at this, um, in the, the number of retries, but you probably shouldn't just continue to retry indefinitely. Sometimes systems are just down and there's nothing you can do about it. In my situation, sometimes those files just, you know, they're erroring and we can't upload them and it needs to be like, hey, we're we're having an issue here. We need you to, you know, we need someone to step in and look at it. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a place for manual intervention. I mean, it's you retry enough that you think that, you know, it's probably down for good. You know, mm-hmm. or it's down for a long while or it's not going to work. And then you go on. Um, you don't want the thing retrying forever because it's still running when people are there in the morning. And yeah. now you got to stop it and you got to worry that you're going to break something by stopping it. You know, it's just, it's a bad situation. There will be a few situations you might not have considered during testing, you know, because like we all run these kind of processes and we never assume, for instance, what happens if there are no records to process, right? If your application, you know, pulls stuff back and says, okay, there's no records or it just tries to get something off the first record and there is no first record, no reference, then crashes. That is really annoying. Um, your application might also get malformed data in the data set that it gets back. And this could be a lot of stuff. You know, front-end developers who have the ability to change a database will often do so without thinking about batch processes that use those same tables. And they may not be going through your ORM, right? It's some yeah. external process that's just doing a stored proc. And then some dumb dumb wrote the stored proc to do select star from this table. And then also made their code where it's like, just grab what's in the third column. And you just stuffed a column in the middle. That's a different yeah. type. I mean, uh, you know, you will see some absolutely wild stuff sometimes. It's really bad. I mean, obviously, you got to be careful about using select star or referencing columns by position but even if you reference them by name that column name may not be there anymore it may have gotten changed yeah i mean you have to that goes into some other topics but you know you have to be cognizant of that and also when you are changing column names be wary of changing column names basically yeah and you know because a lot of times it's not traceable right yeah it's another Like I've worked on systems where you had multiple SQL databases and one of them had a link to another. And that one had a stored proc that called out to an Oracle database somewhere else. Wow. And 
So when somebody changes a column in that Oracle database, it shows up in a system that you have no idea is related. Mm-hmm. Which you shouldn't do that anyway. That's a that's a bad practice, and it's from the '90s, and it needed to die a long time ago, but it didn't. Yeah. So next, underloading. How do we make sure that we don't retrieve too many work items to process? You know, either as a result of an attack a mistake by a developer or because the application you're supporting has grown, uh, you need to make sure that you limit how many records you load into memory at one time. If you don't do this, your startup and load time is going to be extremely slow and you can run out of memory just straight up Mm -hmm. because you've got too many records in there. You might also put excessive pressure on the database server or the network during this step. Probably not the network. For most people, it's probably going to hit the database server first, unless you're an organization that has your production database server on a developer machine in a closet somewhere. Then you're probably toast anyway. Yes. The best way to do this is to track which records your process has grabbed and which ones have completed processing, um, along with some kind of identifier for the processor and a timestamp for when you started. That way you can track failures because some failures just don't come back. Right? Like mm-hmm. the network may have gone down between the database server and the the app server and the app server couldn't report that it finished. So you just want a timestamp on there too. So you can actually query in a reasonable way and figure out what's going on when you come in and you're decaffeinated at four o'clock in the morning because you got a phone call. Mm -hmm. If possible, you want to make your processing logic idempotent so that nothing bad happens if a record runs twice. Right. So you may just have to do something like look and say, hey, is this one already processed at your end? Because it's not at mine. If it is processed at your end, give me the data that I need to cram back in there and go on with life instead of trying to run a transaction twice. Yeah. Now, I've worked on systems where people didn't realize how important this was. And so we had a system that was failing at a certain point in the process before it marked the records as complete and it would run them again 30 minutes later and they wouldn't complete and it would run them again. It turns out that if you do this with credit card companies, they don't like you very much. No. (laughs) And your stuff gets turned off real quick. So, yeah, you got to be kind of careful about that. Also, breaking up the workload into chunks makes some other things easier. Like you may need to eventually have multiple instances of the bra- of the batch process running, and so it's easier to do that if the first version is built in such a way that it doesn't grab everything at once. Right. Like I worked on a system that did this with inbound emails, so it would read mailboxes and pull the data in, and we processed it. And some people's mail servers are crap for whatever reason. Sometimes it's like it takes a minute and a half to pull records from that system. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've got, you know, a thousand of them you're checking and theirs took, you know, a minute and a half, guess who all's stuff is behind? All your other tenants on that system. And so if yeah. you break it into chunks, you make it where one system acting weird doesn't slow down the whole batch. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, again, it, it also makes it a lot easier just to have multiple runners if you yeah. do that. Also makes restarting the process easier as you can just grab the records that haven't completed processing yet. Yeah. So again, if you have a logical batch size, you know, like let's say you, you're running a Windows service, you could say, okay, I'm going to finish the current work item I'm doing and record it and then shut down. Whereas if you've got mm-hmm. millions of records and you didn't build that functionality in there from the start because you know your connection is not necessarily always up, now you're going to probably restart all that processing. It also makes it easier to see if a particular processor has an issue or if a transient issue appears frequently at a certain time or after a certain number of records have been processed. Yeah, so sometimes you'll have things like, okay, 1230 at night, there's some other system that goes offline and you didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you deal with like credit bureaus or like background screening or insurance systems or banking systems or credit card systems are not real bad about this. Some medical systems are as well. Like you'll hit it at certain times a day and it isn't there, Mm -hmm. but they didn't tell you. 
that it's not there yeah. during that 15 minute outage window or whatever. And it happens consistently and you go, Oh, I need to change the time on this thing versus it just fails every night and it's your fault developer. Yeah. It also helps a lot when you can go and you can query and you can say, okay, this particular processor on this machine is always really slow and doesn't process as many records, but the machines mm-hmm. are the same. What's going on? Yeah. So finally under loading, how do we make sure that items that can't be processed are marked? Right. So you got to keep track of items that failed to process more than a couple of times and then mark them so that you don't try to again. Uh, that was another issue with the email system that I mm-hmm. worked on. But this was the outbound queue that had this problem. They had previous messages that had failed to send and they were reading all these messages off the table every time the thing ran to go, okay, try to resend it again. And so there were tens of thousands of messages that could not go. Mm-hmm because they they were like invalid email accounts and it would try to send it and it would waste time doing that. So you need to be able to mark it so that they get out of the set. Um, Yeah. I, um, I had to deal with that with the, with this file processing where sometimes it would fail validation and then it immediately gets like, all right, Hey, this needs to be viewed by a person. Other times it would be like something like, Hey, it's having trouble accessing the file to, to upload it. So, it goes into an error queue with a timer on it. Yeah, like a dead letter. Like, oh, yeah. well, it's probably just error queue. And then you go to a dead letter after that. Yeah. Yeah. So like it, it's an error queue. And then, well, what I did to save a little bit of time because it's looping through a bunch of different, like this one background process sitting on the server is looping through a bunch of different folders looking for, hey, has anything been uploaded to this folder? Like it's a temporary folder that then gets uploaded to permanent storage. So it's looping through that. And um, what it does is it takes a look at it and goes, all right, there are this many files in here. How many error files are there? If the number of errored files equals the number of files in there and none of those errored files has timed out, then we don't even process. We don't even look in that folder. Right. You know, it's just, it's, it just speeds up that process. I mean, it's, it's a very minuscule optimization, but when, when it gets up to scale with, you know, hundreds of folders it's looking into that could have hundreds of thousands of files in them, it's going to make the process a lot faster. Well, the other thing you may want to do is you may want to look at the, the files in that directory and do something like they have to be at least three minutes old or something. Yeah. Because as the FTP server writes them out, they may still be locked. Yeah. That's what, that's what I was running into. I thought about doing that, looking at like how old the files were in there. That's the ghetto way I used to always do it. I don't know if that's current standard process or not, but I mean, that's how I would do it just because of those kind of problems. Um, Hmm. I'm going to look into that. It also makes manual interventions a lot easier when you do this uh, because you can easily query for the items that fail and then go deal with those instead of going, okay, I've got this ID. Let me go find that one. Okay. Now I've got this ID that I got from a log file. Let me go find that one. Just mark them. Some DBA can do it and you can decide, okay, I want to fix these where they'll run again next time and Mm -hmm. not worry about it. Or, you know, I manually intervene and I do some other thing it may be worthwhile to record each of the failed attempts in some manner that's queryable so that you can troubleshoot later you know, during business hours. Because again, this is happening in the background. If you go, hey, it failed 10 times, here's the errors it failed with. For each of those times, they may not all be the same. Mm-hmm. And so it's, if you have that, it's a lot easier to figure out what's going on. Yeah, so however you store items that failed to process, you may want to consider an archival process as well like over time failed work items will pile up in the system think about like failed bank transactions Uh, and that's just going to make the system slower over time that's why in the system that i'm working on i built a number of retries yeah i mean there you know there's the retry count but there's also the thing of like that's taking physical space or database space. So you may want to have something that goes back through there and says, Hey, this file is over a month old. Kill it. Yeah. This is also really, really important. If you have sensitive data that's being written, 
mm-hmm. to disk somewhere, like it needs to have a timeout and it needs to be gone after that. Even if you're in a secured location, just make it less valuable for the hackers when they break in. And I noticed, this, noticed I said when. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about running of batch processes. First, under that, how and to whom and by what mechanism do we deal with critical errors? Right. Just because a system is built to run unattended does not mean that failures are going to be unattended. Process is crucial enough to business continuity, then somebody has to find out when an error occurs during processing. The mechanism for this might vary a lot. Uh, It should be configurable without redeploying. And it also needs to be resilient to transient errors of its own. So for instance, if you have a thing that's like, okay, I'll send an admin an email when this thing fails, what happens when the sending the admin an email process fails? Mm Mm-hmm. Or worse, when you go, okay, I'll write to a log and you forget that, oh, hey, I don't have write permission to that directory. And so I wrote that, hey, there's a warning and I just crashed the entire app. Oh my goodness, I've seen this happen with um, with using logging frameworks and you, yeah, you don't realize that the logging framework errors are turned on. Yeah. Which is really, it's really useful. When you're like, all right, why is this through, why is this not working? Why isn't it logging? You turn that on and you go, oh, it's because I don't have permission to write to that file. Then you get permission or you change what you're doing. And then you but, copy in log config out to the production server and two o'clock in the morning, guess what? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that this hits you on is if you are using an in-house logging framework because you thought you had somebody that worked there that didn't understand what a logging framework actually does and they think Mm -hmm. it's just a glorified text writer, those people never, ever anticipate these kind of errors. Mm -hmm. Because their thing is, well, just change the permissions. It's like, but it's two o'clock in the morning. Nobody's here. Yeah. And I'll also tell you that whoever that guy is almost always invariably has the attitude about his own importance. It means that he will not answer the phone at two o'clock in the morning because that's for the junior devs. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... If your app has built-in retry logic for transient failures, you probably do not want to send alerts about a failure until a failure limit has actually been hit, right? So if it's like, okay, we got a network blip, you don't want to do that. Um, False positives tend to have a numbing effect. Uh, And you see this, actually, we saw this um, in, in Nashville. I was talking to somebody late last week that was talking about the Amber Alerts system. Um, you know, like they send out the the alert that, okay, there's a child missing and all this stuff and it hits everybody's mm-hmm. phones. Well, what happens? Well, it happens at two o'clock in the morning here for missing children in Bristol four and a half hours away. And I've gotten alerts for that. And so what do people end up doing? Well, they end up turning off the alerts because they got to get up in the morning and it's not a useful alert for where they are. And then what happens when a tornado comes through and warnings are sent out over the same system? They aren't getting up. Yeah. And it's just, you, you really have to think about this. Um, you're still having to deal with human behavior, notice, in this one, even though you aren't user interactive. In fact, it's even more mm-hmm. important. Just this, you know, part of it. You may not want the failure reporting mechanism to be in your app for several different reasons. If the security environment has changed and caused a failure, it may also stop you from reporting that failure. If a bug in an updated version of the app causes a hard failure, it's very possible that this failure will prevent the reporting of errors as well. Yeah, and just to go into .NET real quick, there are exceptions you can throw that will not be caught. Mm -hmm. Out-of-memory exception is one of them. Because to catch that exception, it has to allocate memory, and it's out of memory. Just, you know, that's one. So you do maybe want to separate this stuff. And error yeah. reporting and diagnostics of a failure might also fail themselves. So you need to make sure these failures don't take down the app if it can otherwise continue processing. So the next one in the running category is how do we deal with transient errors during processing? This is different than during load. Uh, sometimes you'll get a blip while processing and you can just retry and it'll fix it. Network, database, and file system errors can often be recovered from by retrying in a few minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. Since this processing is unattended, 
you probably should implement retry logic in your application for this part. You don't want to retry right away, though, and we'll suggest using an incremental backoff system so that if transient errors occur, you aren't putting undue strain on other parts of the system. I would say it sort of it depends on what you're doing. Yeah, for like for what I was doing. I'm the only thing, only one accessing that. And I realized like it's, but it's, this is a temporary thing to upload paper files. Once yeah. we're out of paper files, that won't be a thing anymore. Yeah. And nobody scales direct file system access that way, right? Yeah. Like you put it out on a CDN or something and you scale it differently. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's probably fine. But like a, a database. For instance, if you just yeah. start beating the crap out of that thing at two o'clock in the morning and everything else is supposed to run, you could make it so that everything's real messed up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Also, be careful about load, especially in processes that don't run during core business hours. You know, there'd be a lot of points in the life cycle of your offline processing app where most of the transient faults you encounter are due to load in one way or another. Right. So try to use some of the strategies from the Enterprise Design Patterns book to think about how to deal with these these issues. Um, You know, those are tried and true. They go back to probably the VAX days, at least, if not before. And Mm -hmm. the idea here is to avoid causing catastrophic system failures with batch processes. So you use things like the circuit breaker pattern. You go, okay, this thing has failed this many times. I'm just going to shut this thing off. Yeah. So that it doesn't, you know, or it doesn't run up a click charge on some other external system and you come in in the morning to a, you know, $5 million bill that you weren't expecting. When processing services external to your batch process, make sure that you take instrumentation around how long calls are taking into account. This makes it easier to rule out problems with external systems when your system's performance is suffering. Right. And this is really important a lot of times with other people's APIs that are external to your company, because Mm -hmm. a lot of them, if you put enough load on them, they actually throttle you. And instead of you getting a response within seconds, it's like, oh, we'll go really slow (laughs) and give him this thing back. And all of a sudden your app just grinds to a screeching halt and you'll get blamed as the developer if you can't go, no, the instrumentation says it's them. Here's the proof. So finally, under running, How do we intend to scale our workload if necessary? Will we support multiple instances? Yeah. If you are already running a job out of band, you probably should be considering scale from the outset. Yeah, I mean, one of the main reasons people do out-of-band processing is precisely because it makes it easier to smooth out issues with load. Right. Like if you get a million new signups, you don't want to send the emails for all those signups at the same time. Your system is already under load. So you may just delay those and smooth it out and go, okay, we're sending a hundred a minute until this is caught up. Mm -hmm. Um, If it takes more resources to run a batch process than it does to take whatever action triggers that process, it's also a likely point of failure in your architecture under load. So you need to think about this in advance. So if it's, you know, if it takes, five milliseconds and you know 20 kilobytes of RAM to trigger this thing, but this thing takes 10 megabytes of RAM and a minute and a half to process. If that first thing, you know, gets really loaded, it can go a long way up before, you know, before it hits a limit, but your other process on the other end can't. Mm-hmm. Also, watch for dependencies. Some of them will have hard limits on the load you can put on them without an additional fee or may even start rejecting requests. Yeah. And you'll see that with any, you know, software as a service type, you know, backend Mm -hmm. platform. Uh, There's some other stuff you need to start considering here um, about scale. You need to consider what it costs to fail. So if something blows up, what happens? Okay, somebody didn't get an email, you know, for an hour. Whoop-de-doo. We didn't stop the nuclear warhead. Different set of problems. Um, (laughs) On on the plus side, you do get to check your error handling for external services. (laughs) Wow. Um, But, you know, that's probably not the kind of upside you want to 
have in the morning triage conversation. You also need to consider the cost per item processed. And what I mean by cost is not just monetary, but you look at RAM, CPU cycles, you know, how hard it hits the database, how much network traffic is generated. And you got to look at several things here. You look at the average, because that's generally what's going to happen, give or take. But you also want to look at the range, probably up to about three standard deviations, so that you can go, okay, what's the absolute worst and the absolute best? Because both of those things can burn you. Mm -hmm. You know, something coming back too fast could cause a problem somewhere else because all of a sudden you're putting load on a third part of your system that you forgot about because you're kicking it into the queue and you have that same thing. You also, if you're talking to management about this, just as an aside, ask them how soon they get the actual value from processing versus how long it takes to get charged for the processing. So for instance, if you pay your server bills every month, but it takes six months for your clients to pay you, you're going to get hurt real bad if a client puts a whole lot of load on you and you're not getting paid for six months because you paid Mm -hmm. immediately. You know, a lot of times the management folks don't think about this kind of stuff enough. Yeah. So the last set that we're going to talk about is stopping. Yeah. So (laughs) people don't think about this, but like what triggers job termination and how do we handle it gracefully? Um, from the outset, you should figure out how long is an acceptable run of a batch process if it's not just, you know, running forever. Sometimes they'll hang. Sometimes they'll get extreme latency because of situations beyond your control. And if they're not supposed to still be running during business hours, like when you come in in the morning, you got to figure out how to kill that thing. Yeah. Your task scheduling system may be able to automatically terminate long running jobs. But these are often not particularly clean in the way that they kill the job. Right. So they'll just stop the running process. Yeah. They won't shut it down and go through the proper process of shutting it down. Especially Um, if you have a home brewed one that doesn't know how that stuff works. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. if you use like, you know, Windows and and Linux, they, they actually send a signal to the app to say, hey, yo, dog, I'm shutting you down in three seconds. You better. You better be at a stopping point when that happens. Yeah. If you build your app properly, like I, because I built this to be a background process, it is listening for that stop signal. Right. So that it can finish its current process, finish what it's doing, and then stop. Right. Shut you have down. like a cancellation token? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, like it, it's, doing that the I guess the proper way but that was when I was looking up how to do it because I hadn't ever written a background process just not something you think a whole lot about as a web developer right yeah especially earlier on in your career it's been really fun learning about this stuff yeah you might also instead opt for a configurable time limit on a batch process and be like hey you check and see if you're over this limit and if you are then you start shutting down yeah. Um, that way it'll just ha- kind of take care of itself and it won't be forced by something else. Um, again, if your code doesn't get into an infinite loop before it hits that condition. Mm-hmm. Um, hard killing a running process is generally a really bad idea because you could leave your system in an inconsistent state if you're not careful. A lot of times these mm-hmm. processes are doing things like reading data from one database, writing it to another, and then updating the first database but it's not a distributed transaction. There's transactions of two of them. And it, mm-hmm. the app is dependent on to keep them stable. And if you kill it when it's written to one and it hadn't written to the other, now things are out of whack and you're going to have to fix it manually. Yeah. So depending on what the batch process does, um, what you do at shutdown could vary wildly. You may need to simply roll back a database transaction or two if you're lucky and everything is on-premise and in a single database and you're not calling any external services, you're not calling any microservices. Yeah, and your pet unicorn only eats Skittles. Basically, yeah. an event that never happens. Um, <laughs> give yeah. or take. Mm-hmm. You know, your pet unicorn that's being fed Skittles by Sasquatch. It, this is low probability. If you're like the rest of us, and you're using multiple databases that you own and the processing happens across databases, it's entirely possible to end up in a state where data has been committed to one and not to the other um, or where it has to be rolled back in the other one. 
you may have to write your process in such a way that you can detect and correct this when it starts up the next time. Make it where it auto cleans itself. So when somebody bounces the mm-hmm. thing, it just fixes it before the admin notices. If you're making calls to external services and you stop halfway through, you're going to need to find some way of recovering from a partial completion, especially if the external service costs you or your clients money. So like a payment processor, those kind of things. Um, a lot of external services also, you submit a job to them and they call back on a webhook on your end. Well, if you killed the system that that webhook needs, all of a sudden those return calls aren't coming. Mm-hmm. Try to keep anything you're doing item potent. Why is it that both times you've used this word, I've been the one that's had to say it? It's because you wrote this outline and you paused for me to say it. Uh, if possible, or at least do so for as much of the work as you can. I'd like to address your comment. Um, the thing is, is I think about failure modes when I do things. <laughs> <laughs> and I just do the Shatner pause right before I see that word in a sentence or any of the other words I can't pronounce half the time. Um, <laughs> come on, man. You know this game. I know, I know. So next, understopping. What happens if the job runs longer than expected? You know, besides having to worry about a long-running job needing to be terminated, you also need to consider what happens if it doesn't stop or or the consequences of it just keeping to going. Yeah. Yeah. Or if it, you know, if it runs an hour extra, but the CEO is depending on some report that this goofy thing generates and he's in the meeting with the board and the report isn't there. Mm Mm-hmm. For example, if you're processing financial transactions and you have a slow processor, that means that transactions could take place on different days. Yeah, which is really fun when you have things like rent being due on the third and the transaction should have gone through on the third, but it went through on the fourth and you didn't catch it and you sent out you know, late notices and put a lien on somebody's car or something, you know, like... It can really backfire bad. Mm-hmm. Like those downstream problems really, really get you in a lot of really uncomfortable ways. And the other thing is if a process runs too long, uh, will it or should it start picking up work that was queued up during the current run? So like it's processing yesterday's records, but it's doing it in chunks, right? It's reading off the database. Well, today's records start coming in. What happens? Do they need to go? I would say no. They should wait for their own process. What's stopping them? Yeah, I mean that. Like yeah. that could legitimately happen. And the the thing about that is, is you could actually do something like um, where it looks like your sales were double what they were, but actually what it was was some stupid executable that just didn't run fast enough, and it got today's numbers in with yesterday's, and tomorrow's numbers for today are going to look flat. Oh, you mean like our podcast statistics do sometimes? Yes. Um, It's amazing how we think about the same things when we look at this. Um, You also have to consider load issues. If the process is intensive in terms of system resources, like video processing, what happens if the run extends into normal business hours when, you know, the people in suits want the system to be quick and snappy? Yeah. Um, and you got to think about artifacts that are produced by the process. This is stuff like reports that you know I mentioned with you know going to the CEO. Um, mm-hmm. If they're not ready on time, how do humans that need that data proceed with their jobs? Is everybody dead in the water? Mm-hmm. You know, is the board mad and firing the CEO because he can't get a report on time? Yeah. Will external services start acting differently if processing runs over on your end? Could you hit rate limits for external services if both the batch process and your normal business processes are running concurrently? Right? Like, let's say you get 3,600 transactions in an hour. Your batch process normally, you know, it, it cuts off at 3,500. And during the night, that's not a problem. But during the day, you're getting 1,000 an hour. All of a sudden, you're over yeah. a rate limit. Yeah. What happens? Well, what's the cost of that? I mean... Yeah. So finally, the the last one we're going to talk about, how should the process report its results? When a process completes, is there anything produced that humans need to deal with? Uh, Typically, at the very least, there will be some data that will need to be updated to indicate a process run and 
and it, to indicate a process ran and what resulted from it. You may also need to report failed work items and even performance issues encountered along the way. Yeah, and admins generally need to know if stuff failed and for whom so that they can actually start dealing with the results. So it's way better if your support or your administrators can get a report that says, hey, this client's stuff failed overnight. They can call the client and go, hey, we noticed this. We're working on fixing it. Just so you know, heads up. That looks really good. What looks really bad is when it failed and your people don't know Mm -hmm. because they aren't watching. So you want to avoid that. You also need to think carefully about how the data that your end users need is going to be retrieved. Like It's probably worthwhile to actually build out reporting tables and aggregate the required data beforehand rather than putting load on servers during your normal operating hours. Yeah, so like if it's a report, now, this this is something that blows my mind, right? Like you'll have a running process overnight and then there's this big report that comes off of it. And instead of generating that report that's the same every day, they write a query that builds that report on the fly whenever they need it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but it's the same. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Why are you doing that? And, you know, especially as processes get bigger, that's something that gets ignored and that thing will get slower and slower. And then it's like, oh, well, now you need to write this report. And the guy that wrote the thing, because he, you know, he's a guy that writes reports, maybe not the happiest developer. He moved on to more fun stuff. He's not there. You get to reverse engineer that stupid thing. Don't do that. Like if it's going to be the same, cash that crap. And this is why you have a BI person write your reports because that's what they want to do. Yeah, it makes them happy. And, you know, when somebody's got a weird hobby that makes them happy, let them go do it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This is really true if the data is scattered across numerous places or it's difficult to aggregate in some way. Like, just put that load up front and, and get it over with. That way you don't have to worry about an outage during the day causing a problem because the users don't experience that system. Mm -hmm. If you send data to humans and your process is delayed, you might also want to send some kind of notification that the reporting will be delayed if it is. I mean, this goes back to, you know, people are not upset or angered if they're not surprised. Right. Like if they get a notification saying, hey, this this is going to be delayed, they go, oh, well, that happens. And then when they get it, they get it. But if they just don't get it and they're expecting it, they're going to be upset. Yeah. Batch processing is common in older industries and is often used to shift system workloads into time periods where utilization is lower. At some point in your career, you're probably going to be tasked with writing a batch process to handle off-hours data processing. We hope that the set of suggestions and questions that we offered here will make it easier for you to successfully build a process that runs off hours uh, when that time comes. So that pretty much wraps us up. What do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So we're switching things up with Will doing the um, book club. And uh, so I took over Tricks of the Trade. And I've been thinking about it. Yeah, we were talking about batch processing for things we do automatically on the computer, sort of in the background. And it got me to thinking about things that we sort of batch process in life. You know, things that we sort of, uh, have you heard like run on default? Yeah. If you think about it, have you ever driven home and you remember leaving work and then you pull into your driveway and you're like, how did I get here? Yeah. Because it's it's faded into the background. Yeah. Or you you start doing laundry and you just, you know, you get into the rhythm or you're doing some repetitive manual task and your brain's off somewhere else. That happens. The trick is to not let that run your life. Like Will and I both know several people who pretty much live in default mode. Yeah. And, and like, watch TV in that mode, especially. Yeah, like they're not intentional about what they do. And we talk about intentionality a lot on the show because it's something that we want to help people understand. And like it took us years to figure out and develop. And we want to save people like you guys some of that pain that we went through in figuring this out. 
but it's use that default mode, that batch processing in your own brain to your benefit. You right. Know? So like establishing habits, like I have a habit of getting my coffee ready for tomorrow morning at night before I go to bed and then I practice my Russian and then I go to sleep. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to get used to doing that because uh, for Christmas, my sister bought me a new coffee pot that I can have like automatically start up. It's the best um, thing ever. Except for daylight savings time when you know you set it to go off at 6.30 and you have to leave at 7.30 and then you go to get coffee and you realize, oh, <laughs> oops, <laughs> time changed. Yeah. And that you know didn't. something I really wish existed, just as an mm-hmm. aside, before we go too far, I wish that there was a way to get IoT devices in your house on the same clock without it going outside the house where it's vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, that would be you nice. Know, that was like an understood thing. That would be really mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. So, but that said, I, I just like my morning routine is literally get out of bed and go make coffee. And I usually start like really waking up when I'm in the shower after doing all that. And that's good batch processing because this is not something I need to think about. Yeah. And then I get out of the shower and there's coffee made for me when I've already started to wake up and it's like, and I want it. So just what I'm getting at is be intentional about your own default mode or batch processing in what you do yourself. Yeah. And shape Um, it. Yeah. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.